The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. The two most important places, um, locations, if you will, in Jesus' ministry were the cross and the tomb. And the most important thing we could say about the cross is that Jesus gave himself for us on it. And the most important thing we can say about the tomb is that Jesus walked out of it. And as Christians, we realize that the best thing we can say about both is that they're both empty. Jesus didn't stay on the cross. He finished his work there. Jesus didn't stay in the tomb. God raised him from the dead. This morning's sermon is titled, The Empty Tomb because it follows the empty cross. And this morning, I pray that God will help us to appreciate all that it means to have Jesus finish his work on the cross, leave the tomb empty, ascend back to glory, and intercede now at the right hand of God. Jesus' empty tomb means so much more than we might think for everything. One of the things we struggle with in our culture is meaning in the face of our mortality. Leo Tolstoy wrote this. My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every man, a question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything? Why do anything? It can be expressed as thus, Tolstoy wrote. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Meaning over mortality is answered at the empty tomb. Here's another one. Is there any hope for the future? Not just my future, although my future too, but any hope for the future of the world? Is there any confidence that it won't be a dystopian devastation. The empty tomb gives us an answer. A second longing we have, or a third one I should say. What gives me the framework for how I should live today? What gives me the framework for how I should live today? Ralph Barton was an eminent cartoonist in the early 1900s. And he left a note pinned to his pillow before he took his own life. And here's what the note said. I have had few difficulties, many friends, great successes. I've gone from wife to wife, house to house, visited many countries in the world, but I am fed up with inventing devices to fill up 24 hours of the day. What should I be doing now? And the truth is you cannot answer that question unless there is a grand truth, a grand history that is going somewhere. And the empty tomb shows us it is. Something happened historically that shapes the future and therefore tells me how I ought to live in the present. Sometimes people act like, you know, there's certain parts of the Bible I like, certain parts I don't, certain parts of Jesus' teaching I like, certain parts I don't. If you recognize Jesus rose from the dead, you don't even ask that question. (laughs) You now know the framework for everything. 
the history in which you fit. Let's enjoy that and be shaped by that this morning as we continue where our brother left off. He left off in verse 54. We're going to continue. We've gone through those preceding verses from some various standpoints when we looked at Jesus and Pilate, Jesus and Judas. But now we pick up in verse 55. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph. This would be uh, Jesus's mom and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And now we're going to slow down a little bit and we're going to look. And if you have a bulletin with you, you'll see number one, Jesus was buried after he died from crucifixion. And here we see Matthew focus on Joseph of Arimathea. Verse 57, when it was evening, this would be about 6 p.m. on Friday, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. Notice this, who was also a disciple of Jesus. Here, Matthew omits some of the things the other gospels write. The other gospel writers point out that Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin. But here, what Matthew focuses on is that he was wealthy, but that he was a disciple of Jesus. Look what Joseph does now in verse 58. We may miss how much courage this would have taken because it was a very risky thing to do. Joseph, in verse 58, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. This was very risky because Roman protocol was that you leave the crucified body to decay so that it has an impact on everybody who views it. As I pointed out in Good Friday last year, the Romans took great precautions and were very intentional about this fact. They wanted crucifixions to be done in the most public and visible place possible. Like a billboard off an interstate, they wanted everyone to see it. And therefore, they wanted bodies to continue to decay there to show their power and authority. So Pilate does something unusual when the verse continues in verse 58, when Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Joseph was courageous to even ask. Notice his care in verse 59. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. Joseph is sacrificing his own wealth here. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Joseph would even come to request the body because Deuteronomy tells us in chapter 21 that cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And so Jews would not want a body to remain hung on a tree. But there's some applications for us here already. Do you remember the last time we met a rich person in the Gospel of Matthew? It was actually homecoming Sunday that we were in this passage. He's the rich young ruler. Remember he deserted and the disciples said, who could be saved? And God said with, Jesus said with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And here Matthew records a disciple who is wealthy. Here at the end of the gospel of Matthew, then we have an encouragement. God does the impossible. He saves anyone. We should then expect he's about to do the impossible in the passage. And in fact, if we know that Nicodemus helped him, as John points out, and that Joseph was from the Sanhedrin, God even says those who think morally that they didn't need God. But something else is going on here. Remember Isaiah 53 verse 9 says about the future Messiah. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Here another prophecy is being fulfilled that was centuries old. 
God has even determined where the Messiah's body would be laid. But something else wonderful is worthy of applying. Don't you love that scripture in Ephesians 3 that tells us God is able to do above and beyond what we ask or think? Joseph is doing something sacrificial. He's given up his own tomb that he had spent money on and rock that he had cut. But God's going to do more than he asked or thought. Verse 61. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, (coughs) sitting opposite the tomb. There's some things we need to notice here and appreciate. These women have remained faithful when all of the male disciples have deserted. The only people left at this point are the female followers of Christ. And they're about to be commissioned in a few verses. It shows their devotion and their tenderheartedness. It also prepares us for how Jesus will commission them. Verse 62. The next day, that is the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure. They don't seem as certain that he's an imposter anymore, do they? <laughs> we know that imposter said he would rise, so can we make sure we really secure the tomb? Lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead. And then the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you, as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. The seal would have been an official Roman imprint and the guards would have been people whose lives are at risk if they do not properly guard it. So they've made every effort. You notice something that I think is really striking here. These are people that have been defiantly opposed to God, but now they're a little bit shaky. Now they're a little bit nervous. It reminds me of Poe's telltale heart. You uh, can't suppress that pang of conscience. One of my favorite scriptures is Proverbs 28, verse 1, which says, The wicked flee when no one pursues. Looking over your shoulder, is somebody going to find out? Is someone going to know? Is judgment going to come? Am I going to be exposed? Is there going to be a time where, yes, there is. See, here's what these people know deep down, and this is what causes them fear. Did you know everyone knows God wins? Everyone knows God wins. Satan knows. Unbelievers know. Christians, everyone knows. You either know that with delight or you know that with dread, but you know it. And here they know what's going to happen. But guess what, Pilate? Guess what, Jewish religious leaders? You can seal that tomb all you want. God rolls it away. So chapter 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary and Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. I want to point out some things that I don't want us to take for granted. The first day of the week is extremely significant. Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. This is what we now refer to as the Lord's day, meaning the day that the Lord has made his own by raising himself on that day by the grace of God. This also has always meant historically for Christians that Sunday is not first merely in sequence, but first in priority. Sunday is the day we rejoice and rest 
that our Lord is risen. Not just Easter, but every Sunday we remember that regularly as we gather. Mary and the other Mary have come on the day that now all believers will come. 1 Corinthians 16.2, Paul is writing to the church of Corinth, and he says to lay up on the first day of every week in that passage talking about their offering. But his expectation is that the first day of every week the church gathers. Mary and the other Mary have come, though, to embalm the body. So Joseph of Arimathea assumed Jesus is dead. Mary and the other Mary assume Jesus is dead. They're still disciples. But none of them believe that God is going to actually raise Jesus from the dead. That's beyond what they would have thought. It's important here that the women are the first two witnesses because in Jewish culture in the first century, women's testimony was not considered credible, which actually shows us that this is a historically true account because you would not choose discredited sources if you were making up your own story. So verse 2, and behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Would you just pause and picture that right now? I mean, the stone is back. An angel is sitting on it because it's done. Verse 3, his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, trained, grizzled guards who saw the crucifixion and were fine, trembled and became like dead men. Apparently then, we can say for certain that angels do not look like porcelain precious moment dolls, <laughs> Because these guys are down. Here's why this is important. We have a bad tendency to domesticate God's glory. No one can see God's face and live. These angels stand in his presence. Surely if we saw them, we would be on the ground too. As Isaiah said, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. Notice then who's able to stand. Verse 5, but the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. They were afraid too. But he tells them they need not be because they seek Jesus who was crucified. Just like Isaiah was able to have his sin atoned and he could stand. So the one following Jesus can have sure footing. I want you to notice they have sure footing after an earthquake. Where is that earthquake tied to? Our brother read it earlier already. Remember, when Jesus was finished, the temple split and the earth quaked. And now we have a reverberation, an aftershock, to show the connection between the crucifixion and the resurrection. Notice now the angel's message, verse 6. He is not here, for he has risen. And my favorite three words, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. I love that phrase. As he said, God always, always, always does what he says he will do. Even when his best followers doubt it. Did you know that God's accomplishment is not dependent on your faith? 
Your level of belief is not what makes it happen. If I remember from watching the movie Hook, I think that's how Tinkerbell exists. (laughs) That's not how God exists. Your belief in him or lack of it changes nothing about him and his reality. God does what he says he will do. But see, God is so gracious that he opens the tomb for his disciples' benefit. You see that at the end of verse? Come, see the place where he lay. See, the angel sitting on top of the stone so that the believers can be assured and encouraged. The tomb is open so that the believers can realize this is not a spiritual resurrection. This is a bodily one. He's not there anymore. God has not produced a parlor trick. He's conquered sin and death in tangible triumph. So verse 7, Go quickly, tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead, and behold, He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see Him. See, I have told you. Those two qualities are still endemic to being a believer. Go and tell. How could this good news be suppressed? But isn't it every believer's favorite promise? You will see him. And as did the first ladies, so will all disciples of our Lord. Notice the haste they have in verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb. And I love this. With fear and great joy. That's the hallmark of a believer. Fear and great joy. And ran to tell his disciples. Verse 9, And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. I would love if I had a recording of how he said that. (laughs) And they came up and took hold of his feet because he was there bodily and they worshipped him. You should note that in the Bible that anytime someone falls to worship an angel or a person, they're immediately told, stop doing that. I'm not God. Notice Jesus accepts the worship because he is God. Verse 10, then Jesus said to them, again, they needed to be told, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. This is the only time in all four of the gospels that Jesus calls his disciples his brothers. He's referring to all disciples, and he calls them his brothers. Jesus there is letting us know that though his brothers abandon him at the cross, he still loves them and accepts them as his family. Aren't you glad that Jesus forgives (laughs) and that he affirms even when we fail. Romans 8 tells us from this same phrase, my brothers, verse 28, all things will work together for good. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Hebrews 2, 11, Jesus is the founder of your salvation and he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that we might be his and he might become a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
It is a great thing that Jesus calls brothers. Verse 10 says something else that's striking. He tells them to go to Galilee. Why Galilee? You'd have to really be tracing it very carefully in the Gospel of Matthew, but Galilee in chapter 4 is called Galilee of the Gentiles. You might remember it vaguely. In chapter 4, the question is, a light would shine from Galilee? That's how it would read. Galilee of all places? This is a place of forgotten people. It's a place of unimportance. That's the place Jesus goes back to because those are the people Jesus calls. Now, verse 11 through 15, the Jewish religious leaders who are really sweating it now try to pay for a false story. Verse 11, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. This is quite a fisherman's tale. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. I think the soldiers got the better end of the deal here. (laughs) Look in verse 15. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. See, a Roman soldier knows that this story is completely ridiculous. The odds of them all falling asleep at the same time? And if they were asleep, how would they know it was the disciples who took Jesus? And if they sleep on the job, they're dead. That's why they took the money and left. (laughs) So here we have the nerve-wracked Jewish religious leaders attempting to change the truth. And that prepares us to pause for a moment of application. At this point in the Gospel of Matthew, here are the people who have witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Angels, soldiers, women, and Jewish religious leaders. Now, I want you to notice this. Of all four of those groups who all know for sure that Jesus has risen from the dead, they are not all believers or followers of Jesus. Did you know that we do not have a fact problem? We have a sin problem. We do not have an evidence problem. We have a humility problem. We kid ourselves when we say, if I just saw more, if I knew more, then I would believe. No, our stubborn sinfulness is the reason we do not believe. The soldiers saw him rise. They fell on the ground when the angel was there. The Jewish religious leaders are now paying people to try to keep it quiet. See, the reality is we know the truth, but we suppress it and unrighteousness. But this morning, I want to encourage you to not suppress the truth because the resurrection is the best news there is. Now, I didn't give this to you on the notes, and I know I'm going to give it to you quick because I wrote it, uh, I think, last night, actually, or Friday night. Here are a handful of reasons why I think the resurrection is such encouraging news based on what the New Testament writers later wrote as they unpacked what they had just seen and heard. All right, here it is, number one. Here's good news that Jesus is risen from the dead. Number one, we can be born again with life that is eternal. Here's what Peter wrote 
under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. As Paul write, wrote, I've been crucified with Christ, therefore it is no longer I who live. Jesus Christ now lives in me. I live in faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If, if new birth sounds strange to you because we've had 2,000 years of using the word and the phrase kind of differently, maybe this will help. Jesus Christ didn't technically come to make bad people good. He technically came to make dead people alive. That's why he died and rose. And that's what the new birth is. I don't know for sure, but John tells us that Nicodemus was with Joseph of Arimathea when they put Jesus' body in the tomb. I don't know for sure, but don't you want to ask Nicodemus in heaven, what did you understand about the new birth after you saw resurrected Jesus? (laughs) Then you probably got what he was talking about. You're never the person you were before. You have something eternal that can't be taken. You are new forever. Here's why new birth is so much better than religion. New birth is not a fresh start. Every fresh start fades. New birth is a forever new that can only grow greener. See, new birth is eternal. Number one. Now number two. These are just words taken from the Bible, okay? Here's the second reason the resurrection is so great. Because it means we can be saved. Here's a verse that I've taught my children at home. Romans 10, verse 9. Sorry, I'm going to do the hand motions. (laughs) If we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is good news. To know that because Jesus rose, everything that stood against me is over. The cross is empty. The tomb is empty. Salvation is forever. Save from what, you ask? The wages of our sin, the wrath of God, the punishment we deserve, but rescued from it eternally. Let me ask you before I go to number three, have you experienced that? Are you born again? Are you saved? Here's the good news. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe God's raised from the dead, and you will be saved. And with the mouth, you confess that unto salvation, and we make that public through the water of baptism. I invite you to both. Number three, then. Because of the resurrection, there is nothing bad in your life that God cannot change. Because of the resurrection, you can change. Romans 6 Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too walk in newness of life. The reason why there's no sin that has to be the defining thing that kills you is because Jesus rose from the dead. Just this week I was talking to someone who was telling me that they had years far from God, years of significant drug abuse, significant problems, And they said, you know, the craziest thing happened when I heard the gospel and I got saved. I never went to therapy. I never went to rehab. I never joined an AA program. I just got involved in church and God took it all away. 
See, the power of the resurrection is more powerful than any human ingenuity we have. Romans 6 is telling us that God gives transformation by resurrection power, not human technique. Number four, because of the resurrection, it is not death to die. 1 Corinthians 6.14, God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Leo Tolstoy was concerned about what would happen to his future. His only hope was that he might leave a legacy. But the resurrection means our best hope is not to leave a legacy. Our best hope is to launch into eternal life. Number five, we can trust God's promises, especially the ones that seem most impossible. Joseph of Arimathea and the Marys, they just went to bury the body. But Jesus rose just as he said. All the promises of God will be fulfilled, and the resurrection makes that clear. But number six, and finally, the resurrection means God will make all things new. Sometimes Christians are accused of being people who only care about spiritual things and don't have enough care about what's going on in this world and all the injustice and all the suffering and all the things that are out of control. But what people don't understand about Christian truth is we care deeply about those things. We know the only hope for all those things to change. Revelation 21, verse 5, Behold, the one who's seated at the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. You see, the Alpha and the Omega, the resurrection and the life, he's the one who makes all things new. We want to be used by him to be salt and life, but we know the only one who makes all things new is Jesus Christ. One day he will. All the things in this world that are cursed will be reversed. But that certainty was made clear in the resurrection. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul gives this list of if the resurrection did not happen, then this is the case and this is the case. What if we flipped it positively? When you recognize the resurrection did happen, then rather than our faith being in vain, it is well-founded. It is absolutely certain. Because we recognize the resurrection, we are not to be pitied as if it didn't happen. We are to be envied because it did happen. We will not be disappointed. We will be delighted because the truth that we long for has occurred. So, as Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who dies, who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he also live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus' question to her remains his question to us. Do you believe this? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much that Jesus lives. And there are, we, we don't even have time in one sermon, and I don't have a big enough mind to explain in one sermon all the reasons that matters. But may your spirit press through your word some of the key ones. Remind us, Lord, that we can be born again and saved from our sin because Jesus rose from the dead. God, I'm so thankful that the cross and the tomb are both empty. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus is not still on it. He finished it. Thank you that he's not still in it. He walked out of it. 
And that tells us what happens to us. That is why in baptism, Lord, we go under, but we come up because we're forever new. Thank you, Lord, for the new birth. I pray if someone today hasn't crossed that line, that they would cross the line to calling on the name of the Lord and being saved. And then help them to come for baptism so that you can glorify your name through showing in that picture what Jesus did when he rose again. Lord, I pray also for a saint who may be struggling with sin and thinking that it's insurmountable. Perhaps they've tried many different efforts and they've tried to hide it, they've tried to change it, they've maybe even sought professional counsel for it and they haven't seen it budge at all. But Romans 6 explicitly tells us that we are raised to walk in newness of life and we must count ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. So, Lord, help them to tap into the resurrection power of Jesus. Also, Lord, I thank you that the end of the story is that God wins. So, Lord, anybody who thinks they can secure the tomb, they, they can't. It's rolling open. And anyone who thinks they can destroy this world or thwart God's plan, they, they can't. Jesus returns and he makes all things new. So, Lord, thank you for the hope for the world and the hope for each one of us personally that there is a risen Savior. So get it, give us, Lord, the urgency to go and tell, but also give us the confidence we will see him. In Christ I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, Go to ebcraleigh.com. That's e b c r a l e i g h dot com.